1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I know that a dude invented the light bulb or whatever. (laughs) But really, where would we be Mm -hmm. as a civilization without Ruth Graves Wakefield?
3: That's what I say all the time. I know. I'm quoting you. Right. So what
2: did I? What did I? I'm testing you. What did I say? So you said, Mm -hmm. y'all. okay, Thomas Edison is cool and everything. Mm. But Ruth Graves Wakefield Mm. invented the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah.
3: You know, I celebrate her as often as I can.
2: (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. And uh, she invented the chocolate chip cookie in 1938. And she was the owner of the Toll House Inn in Whitman, Massachusetts. Oh, Toll House cookies. Oh, uh, not Whitman cookies. Toll no. Cookies. Although I wonder if she also invented the the Whitman Sampler. Oh, oh. Maybe she is my favorite. <gasps> oh, really? Oh, I'd rather have a cookie than a Whitman Sampler. Oh, but that's for an, sure. Another no, podcast. I mean, if you're going to
3: pile sweets
2: around me. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't really care who you are. <laughs> Or what you invented <laughs> oh man so many so many rad ruths we got a notorious rbg we've got a chocolate chip cookie ruth so talking about just women inventing things
3: cookies what have you that would be a 30-hour conversation at least it would be several 30-hour conversations because women are people and they've invented Amazing things. So
2: buckle up, get your cookies for this 30-hour <laughs> podcast,
3: part one of seven. Um No, we wanted to zero in on the patent gap because obviously inventions, innovation, intimately tied up with patents, securing the property rights to those inventions. And as a Sminty listener might expect, there have been some institutional factors that have prevented women from getting the same types of numbers in the patent game
2: that uh, as men have in addition to our hysterical uteruses you know well yeah it's I always mean, been it's it's tough to invent when you're when your insides are <laughs> screaming for a baby just bouncing
3: around and they're babyless um well first of all okay let me give you just a short definition of what a patent is basically uh it's property rights that the inventor gets, usually for a term of about 20 years, to, quote, exclude others from making, using, offering for sale or selling the invention in the U.S. or importing it into the U.S. And there's three types. Uh, There's the utility patent, which is basically you've made a new uh, machine or thing. Uh, There's the design patent where you've made a new design for the thing. And then there's the plant patent, which has nothing to do with the thing. It's when you've invented or discovered and asexually reproduced any new
2: variety of plant. I would also propose a fourth category, which mm-hmm. is the troll patent, such as since this is a podcast, we got to mention the the, the podcast patent troll, mm-hmm. where where the fella, uh, this this guy, a few years ago now, patented. A very vague description uh, of, like, internet-mediated broadcasts, which is basically the definition of a podcast. And he then used that patent to try to bring a bunch of lawsuits, unsuccessfully, to shows, including uh the How Stuff Works brother podcast, Stuff You Should Know.
3: Yeah, I mean, he basically just went after, like, famous... Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mark Marone. Mark Marone. <laughs> Mar- Marshmallow Marone. Uh, and WTF and uh This American Life also had to deal with it. Anywho, I like the etymology of patent mm-hmm. that you found, Caroline. Um, it, it's it's kind of romantic in a way. <laughs> yeah, so medieval
3: rulers would grant these things called litterae patentes, Latin for open letters, to publicly confer certain rights and privileges on folks. It just sounds
2: so fancy.
3: literai patentes It's almost like potatoes. Mm. Literary potatoes. Oh, hello. Mm. Sounds delicious. Scalloped. Uh, and a lot of the earliest patent stuff comes out of Italy. So in 1421, we get possibly the first industrial patent filed for this whole crane system used to ship and transport marble. Uh, and in the 1470s, you start to see a lot of patents being used for stuff about glass in particular. Um First, they were to protect the Venetian glass blowers trade, but also in England, uh, the first recorded patent of invention was granted by King Henry the sixth in 1449 to this Flemish guy named John. You don't need to know his last name because I'm pretty sure he didn't have one. But he basically developed a new way of making stained glass. And the whole thing was like, okay, John,
2: you're a Flemish John.
3: Flemish John. Um, <laughs> you're fine. Uh, But you and you have the rights to this glass making thing, but you've got to teach your fellow Englishman how to do it eventually, which basically translated into (laughs) the birth of the modern patent
2: system. That's kind of sneaky, though. Like, yeah, well, I'll give you this patent, but you got to tell us how you do all your stuff. Well, yeah. And so when we move over to colonial America,
3: it's a similar system and it's called limited monopolies. Which is basically like the definition of patents I just gave you. Like, you—it's your thing. Nobody else can make it or sell it or profit from it, but only for a limited time. And the patent system was even insured in the U.S. Constitution by the founding fathers. They wanted to secure for limited times these artistic and scientific innovations, uh, so that
2: inventors could have exclusive rights to them. Yeah, and and I never considered how. The Founding Fathers wanted to set up this system in order to promote scientific and artistic progress. Oh, for sure. And women were also in on the scientific and artistic progress, even though obviously there has historically been a wide gender gap, largely due to gender roles and institutional issues that we'll get into, but... Even back in colonial times, you still have uh, sisters doing it for themselves, really driven and still rings true today, Mm -hmm. driven out of necessity to save some time. Oh, yeah. So in 1715...
3: Sibylla Masters invents this way to clean and refine corn and then process it into different food and cloth products. And she's awesome because this is the first patent issued to a man or a woman in recorded American history. What B- but but oh. yeah, but uh the patent was actually
2: issued in her husband's name because at the time women couldn't register. Now, what a hoot it would be if her husband's name was also Flemish John. In that case, I'd be more okay with this. (laughs)
3: And when you look at the period between 1790 and 1860, throughout that whole stretch, only 77 patents were credited to women inventors. But still, they were there. And the fact that they are recorded at all is an indication that, A, women were in the inventing game. B, a lot of their names were probably lost to history or covered up or credited to their husbands. And so you see a number as low as 77. You can pretty much bet that there are a lot more women in there somewhere and that the number of patents does not reflect the number of inventions. A woman might have created some wonderful innovation, have invented something to make her life, her daily life, her day in and day out, better, doesn't mean she went and got a patent for it. So those numbers don't reflect the entire story. Um And the entire story is a little convoluted because in 1793, we get a woman who is very possibly the first woman in the United States, now that we're not the colonies anymore, to receive a patent. And that's Hannah Slater. She filed a patent for her method of making a cotton sewing thread. She... Married this guy who had a cotton mill and was like, well, you've got a cotton mill. I've got an idea for thread,
2: husband. And a beautiful match was made. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, I love what happens in 1807 because it is an invention born of a geopolitical fashion emergency. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a good way to say it. So at the time, we've got the Napoleonic Wars going on. And because of that there was an embargo on the import of British goods, which meant that women in the States couldn't get their hats. No, And Mary Dixon Keys needed her hats. I mean, more specifically, we're talking like bonnets, right? Like fancy bonnets. Um, So she was like, I'm going to pull a Tim gun and make it work. (laughs) So she patented this innovative way to make straw hats. President James Madison signed her patent and First Lady Dolly Madison, Caroline's ancestor. It's true.
3: She's my second cousin, six times removed. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because her maiden name is Payne. I've got a lot of Payne's and Coles's in my family. It's fine. We can talk later if you so guys want to email me. You probably need
2: some Secret Service detail. Yeah, here. you're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, but your, your cousin Dolly <laughs> reportedly wrote to Keyes and congratulated her for helping women in the industry. I love that. Yeah. She's like, hey, you're a lady inventor. That's awesome.
3: And Dolly Madison was kind of known as like a really great first lady. She was kind of the Michelle Obama of her time. She was like a great hostess. Everybody thought she was a lot of fun. She was really nice. And everybody wanted to hang out with her. They were like, James Madison, you're cool. I mean you're the president, but Dolly's where it's at. And so I love that Mary Dixon Keys got this letter from Dolly Madison and got a patent for her design. But of course. There's another layer mm. to Mary Dixon Keys' hat patent, her hatent. Um because the thing is she wasn't the first to come up with this wonderfully innovative way of making up for the fact that she couldn't get her English bonnet in the mail. She was just the first to patent it. Uh, the credit for developing this way of uh, innovatively weaving together straw and silk, that probably goes to one Betsy Metcalf. Uh, whose idea sparked a straw hat extravaganza in New England. Um, but she didn't patent her technique. Oh, Betsy. Yeah. And so what was so great about Betsy Metcalf and Mary Dixon Keys and why I'm sure Dolly Madison was like, Hey, good job, ladies, is that this was a way for women to make money and not necessarily leave the house. I mean, it was still very like, women's sphere specific you know it was still all about that fashion you know very gendered realm but it was still a way to say like hey I can be innovative I have an idea and it's going to catch on and I'm awesome
2: (laughs) and I'm going to make that money I hope they said all of that in their patents you know I'm awesome and I gotta make that money the best revenge is your paper uh, someone once said hashtag it's Beyonce (laughs) So, Caroline, I have uh, run across a number of women inventors Mm -hmm. in the the years that we've done Stuff Mom Never Told You. Over on the Stuff Mom Never Told You website, we have a a Women Inventor Hall of Fame uh, that needs some more people, frankly, because we we have inventors that I had never discovered before, such as Massachusetts shaker Tabitha Babbitt, who in 1813, or roundabouts there— Invented the circular saw.
3: Yeah, I have no idea. And spoiler, spoiler, Tabitha Babbitt is a wonderful but sad example of how the number of patents does not reflect women's innovation per se. Because while she invented it, she didn't patent it. So Babbitt, you know, she's a shaker, uh, she's sitting in her house, she is weaving things, I'm not making that up. Um, And she's watching men at the sawmill down the street using an old back and forth saw and was like, dudes, dudes, like, I feel like a circular saw would be way more efficient and easy to use. She makes a prototype, attaches the blade to the axle of her weaving machine like a boss, uses it at a high rate of speed, successfully testing it and is like. Cool. Well, it's written about the local news is like, oh, Tabitha, Tabitha, baby, this is amazing. This is tremendous. Um, And some French guys were like reading the newspaper and they were like, hey, Tabitha hasn't patented this. So some French guys got the patent for the design. And I just wanted to include that tragic story because you have to know. And as Sminty listeners, you guys are smart. You love us. You're loyal listeners. You know that women were in the game just because they weren't represented by numbers. So we have to tell you about Tabitha.
2: Well, and also, don't we still have conversations today about bro-propriation? Oh, totally. Or fella, fellas uh, have a tendency, not always intentionally, <laughs> hashtag not all men, of poaching women's ideas, even just in In, in the meetings. boardroom, yeah. yeah. Um But let's get back to the Wild West, shall we? <laughs> uh, because this is... Really important to note that after the Civil War, women out West saw the highest rate of increase in patenting because, first of all, you know, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, literally. (laughs) So you're out West, like you got to figure some stuff out. So you make do you make it work like Mm -hmm. Tim Gunn, which fosters innovation. But you also have these frontier states being at the forefront of granting women's rights. And on top of that, too, you have a, quote, lack of surplus low wage black labor that was available as domestic workers in the South. So sisters had to literally white sisters had to do more for themselves.
3: And side note, in the early 1870s, the U.S. Patent Office hired its first female patent examiner. I don't know her name. Couldn't (laughs) find it. Internet,
2: you failed me. Flemish Jane. There we go. (laughs) Flemish Jane Doe. But she was a phlegm, P-H-L, phlegm, cause she just always, <laughs> she always had a scratchy throat. Yeah. It's weird. We don't know her name, but we know about her allergies. Yeah, yeah. It's funny what history records.
3: Yeah. And in 1876, the total cumulative number of patents granted to women was just a thousand. Uh, but that number more than doubled by the 1890s. So what is going on? Well, much like out west, we start to see more women kind of entering public life there's they have higher labor market participation and greater access to education Uh, and there were a lot of legal reforms going on that granted women more economic and property rights because remember patents are property rights and so it's no wonder that there were so few patents among women early on in the game because women in general didn't have property rights let alone Patent rights. And so it wasn't until 1845 that married women in New York could have patent rights, i.e. property rights. So there's a lot of that benevolent sexism going on with, like, property rights, and that just
2: extended to ideas about patents and innovation. Because in order for women to obtain those property rights, they had to shake off the shackles of being legally rendered property of their fathers or their husbands, so it's kind of amazing that women were even doing this, even if it was not that many. Right. Um But also props to Scientific American, which way back in the day was running editorials advising women on the commercial profitability of these small inventions that might appear less technologically demanding.
3: Yeah, I mean, you've got more and more information basically being disseminated to women about like, hey, you can do this, too. And like. We're not necessarily going to encourage you to invent, you know, a John Deere tractor. Uh, Jane. Because <laughs> John Deere. Deere's got to do that. Yeah, he's got it. We can't change history. Um But we can at least encourage you to get in on the game in terms of smaller household things that can make your life and presumably other
2: housewives' lives better. Well, listen, I do not consider a sewing machine to be a small thing. My mother is a seamstress and who that that lady made much of my wardrobe <laughs> as a child and i mentioned that because helen blanchard held 21 sewing machine patents and she is an example of how of the 15% of women not many but 15% of women who qualified as multiple inventors and patentees often focused on those domestic articles and machines. Yeah, That's right. And I mean, cost was a
3: barrier, too, not just for women, but in general, if you wanted to patent your innovation. Uh, B. Zarina Khan, who's the author of The Democratization of Invention, found that oftentimes when you look at those old patents, patent lawyers and agents were often listed alongside the female inventor, suggesting that there were women out there who might have traded part of their property
2: rights as payment
3: for patent application service fees.
2: And I wonder how much that financial barrier to protecting your intellectual property, um, is still a factor today mm-hmm. in terms of the diversity of patent holders in the United States because uh, it's, it, it, patents are not free and protecting your intellectual property is not free either. It takes, Time and money and often a lawyer. Um, so if if people listening know about that, I am curious uh, to get more insights. But hopping back to 1884, speaking of diversity, um, we have seamstress Judy Reed, who was quite possibly the first African-American woman to receive a patent. She applied for one for her dough kneader and roller, which was an improvement to existing kneaders that allowed dough to mix more evenly and not get contaminated. OMPS, oh, uh, Judy Reed was not even literate, but she still was inventing.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there were obviously these women that we're telling you about are great examples of how innovation, inventiveness, genius is not limited. To one economic class. And why did Kristen say she's quite possibly the first African-American woman to receive a patent? Well, it was not uncommon, especially at this time, for women to use just their initials to hide their gender. And those early applications certainly did not ask for your race or your ethnicity. And so Just as I'm sure there are women hidden from history who patented things and invented things, I'm sure there are women of color
2: as well in those numbers. And being a woman from a higher class and with whiter skin might have afforded you uh, more opportunity in terms of developing your inventions, such as one Josephine Garris Cochran, who was the daughter of an engineer... (laughs) And whole Josephine was just fed up with her servants constantly breaking her dishes. So Josephine rolls up her sleeves and designs and patents an early motorized dishwasher. Side note, thank you. <laughs> um, and she establishes the Garrus Cochran Dishwashing Machine Company. In 1893, the machine was shown at the Chicago Exhibition and won an award for, quote, the best mechanical construction for durability and adaptation to its line of work. So no small literary potatoes there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, and at the
3: exhibition, and this is something that Kahn writes about, too, in The Democratization of Invention, the vast majority of the women inventors who were at the event were indeed submitting household product inventions and wanted that boost in sales and publicity that the event would inevitably bring. And and this was yet another way to claim fair compensation. Hey, I can't get an office job outside the house. Well, I can invent a dishwasher or a dough neater or something like that, and you can pay me my money. Uh, But... There was some other stuff going on at the exhibition, too. Uh, The World's Congress of Republican Women met there to celebrate the advances of women. Yay, women are inventing. Let's get together and have a party. But these middle-class white ladies who were members of the Congress of Republican Women were not too jazzed on women inventors who created stereotypically feminine products that might, quote, cause us to lose ground. They didn't want to highlight any inventions, unless they were quite distinguished and brilliant. That's a quote. Meaning that these women who claimed to be actively fighting for women's rights and advancement were instead actively denigrating a large chunk of innovative women including women who made a lot of money off of these household and fashion innovations. I mean, there were a lot of women at the time making good money off of corset innovations and things like cycling skirts. And they were like, "Ugh, you know, corsets, fashion, dough eaters, corn huskers. Like, this is all household garbage. You need to be
2: creating the John Deere tractor or whatever. Um It's a little feminine mystique-ish where it's, it smacks of femphobia saying that uh, you know we we can't we uh, need to shirk off any vestiges of femininity in order to be respected by men, yeah,
3: you're ladies ladies but that's not equality. you're missing the whole point yeah. that these women are innovating and they're doing it with what they can, the resources that are available to them, and keep in mind, too, like this totally made me think of femphobia as well because, like. Yes, women were coming up with household innovations, fashion innovations. But by and large, of course, men still held the majority of those innovations, particularly when it came to fashion and things like corsets. But their inventions weren't poo-pooed. It's only the women who came up with developments in fashion and household stuff that these – for just for example, that the World's Congress of Republican Women were like,
2: meh. Mm. Well, and this goes to an attitude that's still held today that marginalizes so-called micro inventions, like Judy Reed's dough neater, where it is an improvement on an existing machine. Um, and those, those incremental steps are important in our history of innovation. It's not only the macro innovations, the light bulb, um, that is worthwhile and worth considering to be innovative.
3: Yeah, and I mean,
2: you know, we we've talked about
3: women trying to earn fair compensation by patenting their advancements, but it didn't always work out that way. Mary Dixon Key, for instance, the the bonnet lady, she died penniless. And Mary Anderson, who actually patented the windshield wiper, people, uh it's not known whether she even Profited from that. She's from Alabama. Uh, she was riding in a New York City streetcar and was like, holy crap, it's uncomfortable when we're in a blizzard and the driver has to open the window and stick his head out to see <laughs> what's going on with oncoming traffic. And, you know, of course, of course, is anyone surprised that she had a ton of detractors at the time? Not only because she was a woman inventing, but also because they were really scared that windshield wipers were going to distract drivers. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, nobody knows whether she even made that paper off of those windshield wipers. But I just love noting that, that, you know, so many women have been driven by necessity and, and experience. And you just have to be, you have to have the right opportunity and the right drive to grab that chance when you see it, as Mary Anderson did. Because she's like, oh, this is uncomfortable I'm going to do my part to change it. And you see the same kind of thing when it comes to menstrual products. I mean, we talked a lot about this, obviously, in our menstrual cup episode, but one menstrual, <laughs> one menstrual innovator, menstru, menstruator? menstruator? No, that's not right. <laughs> that, that's weird. Um, is one Lillian Gilbreth, and she was active in the 1920s and
2: generally people like, She's a badass. Like, oh, yeah. She deserves her own episode. We mentioned her in our episode on women and engineering. Yeah. Oh,
3: well, yeah. She was an industrial psychologist and engineer, and she was one of the first female engineers with a Ph.D. in the United States. And in addition to all of the amazing innovations she did, you know, she she made your fridge door shelves. Hey, thanks. I like to put my condiments there. Uh, she also invented the foot pedal trash can. Hey, that's handy. I like to put my condiments in there. Yeah, when they're done, when they're empty. Um, but she also reinvented the pad.
2: The maxi pad? The maxi pad. Should we call it the Lillian pad then? Well, totally. Oh, a Lily pad. Aww.
3: Aww. Well, so. You know, and of course, you know, I can hear some people out there being like, but I hate, I hate pads. Well, I guarantee that whatever pad you might have used is not as bad as the pads that women in the 1920s were using. So Lillian Gilbreth didn't just decide the pad needed to be reinvented. She researched the best way to do it, and that involved interviewing more than a thousand women about their loves and hates when it came to menstrual pads. And one of the big hates that women had was the names i don't think i've ever heard about this before the names were things like the ss napkin and flush down ideal
2: women were like guys this is embarrassing okay as someone with a uh, an anchor tattoo i kind of love the ss napkin
3: <laughs> <laughs> well and so she talked to these women about their ideal pad and about hello pinterest uh about the hacks that women were relying on to make those bulky early pads less visible and, and just better
2: able to fit their body shape. Okay, and here's the thing. As all of this is happening, as Lillian is being a total genius, mm-hmm. P.S., she had 12 kids. Yeah, and her husband died, leaving her with
3: 11 children under 19.
2: Yeah, so she's the inspiration for her. Cheaper by the dozen. Right. And in addition to, as you might imagine, her uh, engineering prowess, she was also excellent with time management technique. Isn't she? She's called like the mother of management or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we really should go back and spend more time with with old Lily Pad. <laughs> but we have to talk about women today and the patent situation going on. And we're going to do that when we come right back from a quick break.
1: Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode
0: of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This year is the
1: 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. So I'd like to say
3: that jumping forward from Lillian Gilbreth's redesigned menstrual pad... Uh, that women have made so many strides, and we are now completely equal when it comes to patents. And um, that's
2: not true, because there is a patent gap still in this country. So this is coming from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, who noted that since 1977, women's representation among patent holders has more than quintupled. Good news, all the snaps. But... Fewer than 20 percent of all patents had even one woman inventor in 2010. So a lot of progress, but still, you know, we, we've it, got a we've got a really big gender gap.
3: Yeah, there's there's room to evolve. Oh, yes. uh, and when a woman is involved, they found she's rarely the primary inventor on a patent of the nearly 19 percent of patents that included at least one woman inventor in 2010 at all only 7.7% listed a woman as the primary inventor. And when women are, in fact, listed as the primary inventor, most of those inventions, again, still are concentrated in patent technologies that are associated with traditionally, quote-unquote, female roles, such as innovations in jewelry and apparel. But again, I would say that those innovations are just as important. I feel like it was a woman who invented, like, the magnet bracelet, So important, I can never get a
2: bracelet on. The magnet bracelet. You know what
3: I'm talking about, where instead of a clasp that you have to fiddle with,
2: your bracelet snaps
3: together with magnets.
2: I wanted, when I was a child, to invent a handbag that lit up when you opened it. (gasps) Because my mom would carry around this bag. It was like the Mary Poppins bag. It had so much stuff in it, and she could never find anything and I thought that that would be super helpful for her. And I remember trying to draw it. And listeners, I can barely draw a stick figure. So it didn't go too far. <laughs> uh, but my dad was very encouraging of it in particular. Aww. I remember him being like, you should sell that to Macy's. <laughs> So maybe, you know, maybe maybe I'll pick that back up, although I think that that definitely now exists. No, I I love the patent office at Macy's. Oh, yeah. It's really the cozy. There's always a sale.
3: Um, And this report also found that patents that have any women inventors at all, not just primary inventors, tend to span a greater variety of patent classes, which I thought was interesting. But and there's always a but I hate it. At the current rate of progress, women are not expected to reach patent parity until 2072.
2: And the reason why relates to so many conversations now that we've had about pipeline problems in STEM fields of science, technology, engineering and math, where a lot of patents today come from. A 2012 study, for instance, blamed gender segregation within STEM fields for 31% of the commercial patenting gap. And it found that increases in women's patenting were associated with increases in the share of STEM degrees they get so it's makes sense so two way street there
3: yeah makes sense makes sense but others say that the pipeline issue is really just one aspect of the problem Karen Frankel who wrote a piece in 2013 for the Association of Computing Machinery said that women with such degrees are barely more likely to patent than women who lack them. What? She says that it actually has more to do with women being underrepresented, specifically in patent-intensive STEM branches like engineering, especially electrical and mechanical engineering, and jobs like development and design. So a lot of our patents are coming from developers in electrical and mechanical engineering. And if women aren't there, they're not going to be as likely to create those innovative patents.
2: Right, because as of 2010, women were earning 19% of engineering degrees and 21% of computer science degrees, both of which are very patent-heavy fields, compared to 58% of biological science degrees. Yeah,
3: and there are some notable side effects of women's low rate of patenting. It really can contribute to this notion That women tackle less challenging or less important scientific problems. And this is a notion that was both studied and put to rest by a recent study from Harvard, MIT, and UC Berkeley. It has nothing to do with the, you know, perceived or real level of
2: difficulty of issues that women are tackling. And the whole gendering of genius and innovation is a masculine thing. Correct. So how did that study then dispel that myth. So basically, they looked at just over 4,000 individuals
3: with at least five years of experience as university researchers, and they showed no evidence that women do less significant work than men in fields like biochemistry, genetics, organic chemistry, health sciences, and related areas. Women are doing the same types of work that men are. Mm. And another notable side effect of women's lower rates of patenting is their access to VC funding, venture capital funding. There was a 2014 study that pointed out that, hey, it makes sense. Holding a patent can help a person secure venture capital. Uh, Startup managers report that 76 percent of VC investors consider patents when they're making those funding decisions. And Patent applications can signal the quality of people's
2: research and work. And it might be part of why only about 3% of venture capital funding goes to women-owned companies. And men are four times as likely to have received outsider equity to finance their businesses. I mean, the venture capital world is... A whole other ball of wax in and of itself. Yeah. But worthwhile to consider how patents figure into that too. And also the doors, just the, the almost networking doors, career doors that it mm-hmm. opens aside from helping you start your business. If you have a patent, that helps you get royalties, obviously, but consulting fees as well and landing paid memberships on corporate boards. Um, In that same Harvard, MIT, and UC Berkeley study, though, out of 771 scientific advisory board members in their sample of biomedical companies, only 6.5 percent were women,
3: Yeah. And I mean, to add another layer to all of this, you have to take into account the strength of those mostly male professional networks. Um, Having solid industry contacts is a strong predictor of patenting involvement. But women, according to that study, tend to have smaller and lower level professional networks than their male co- counterparts. The whole like old boys club thing like. That's a real factor. You need to have those connections. And so are there places where women are rocking the patent process?
2: Yeah, just not the United States. Uh, Oh, okay. So this is coming from Indiana University in Bloomington. Also, shout out to Bloomington. You have a lovely, lovely city, and I'd love to come back sometime. Uh, This came out, though, in July 2015. And the, the research found that the rate of patents with women's names was highest in Eastern Europe, Asia, and several African countries. And this is sort of a similar pattern that we see in STEM fields mm-hmm. um, and uh, narrower gender gaps, if not parity, uh, in computer science in particular. And the study also notes that you have greater patent parity in communist and former communist countries. Yeah. So. So, so there we so go. So back to the USSR we go. Yeah. I wonder why that is though. And I'm sure that there's someone listening who can explain that to us. But I, I remember reading this, um, in preparation for this episode and it was almost like a little cliffhanger. These researchers left where it was like, oh yeah. And PS communism. And that's it. So I'm curious to know more about that.
3: The lines of former communist countries are the same lines where there's better STEM invention and patent parity. It's very interesting. Uh, And I hope we do get letters about that. Um, but also the realm of academia. Um, the number of women across the globe filing patents with the U.S. Patent and Trade Office over the past 40 years has risen fastest. Within academia, compared to all other sectors of the innovation economy, and it bumped up from an average of two to three percent across all areas to 18 percent in academia compared to just 10 percent in industry, for example, and. There's some, like, legal framework stuff going on that helps explain that. Um, the Bay Dole Act of 1980 meant that universities got to keep the title to the invention, remember, property rights and and financial benefits, uh, to the invention and take the lead in patenting and licensing discoveries that were made through that feder- federally funded research. But there are, you know, s- there's some controversy over profiting from federally funded university research. Um and lead study author Cassidy Sugimoto says that university's unique emphasis on intellectual communities really helps women. It's a boon to their creation, innovation and patenting in the academic environment versus the isolation, she says, that many women might feel if they pursue entrepreneurship and industry.
2: For instance, but there are so many buts in this episode, Caroline, a lot of big buts, (laughs) so many big buts. Going back to that Harvard, MIT and UC Berkeley study from 2006, uh, when you were describing it earlier, you mentioned how the old boys club is very much real in the realm of patenting and. Invention, and that's something that this study really emphasized of how women academics, female faculty members, specifically in life sciences where you have greater, uh, female participation, they still receive patents at only 40% the rate of men. So even when you have more women in the field, that doesn't necessarily mean that the patents catch up to them because there is no old girls network. Although that sounds amazing. That sounds like golden girls. I (laughs) want to go there.
3: Well, no. And they point out how important those links are, that women in academia need those bridges to not only their counterparts in commerce, but also counterparts in the pharmaceutical, biotech and chemical companies. And if you don't have that strong network, it can be very time consuming to determine whether your idea is even commercially relevant. And men in the Harvard study described having an industry contact not as a benefit, not as a cool thing to have, but literally as a
2: precursor to patenting. Well, and also, if you're a woman in academia you have very little time to spare. And this uh, study also highlighted how women faculty in these life sciences, as they were looking at, were also concerned that going after commercial opportunities via patents might hold them back in their academic careers because (laughs) there is only so much time in one day. And if we already have these pipeline issues for women in STEM fields, because it's just really, really hard to be uh, a mother and a professor than adding a patent holder on top of that. I'm sure can seem just unreasonable for a lot of people.
3: Yeah. Toby Stewart, who's a business professor at UC Berkeley, kind of summed up a lot of what we're talking about in a single quote. He said a prominent male faculty member may make noise at a university's technology transfer office if he doesn't get what he wants. And he also has relationships outside the university and he's more likely to know venture capitalists. Meanwhile, A female professor doesn't tend to know as many people in the industry. And so that goes back to the Harvard studies point that not only are women academics typically, not always, but typically concerned with like, do I even have the frickin time? I don't have the network sounding board to even tell me if this is a good idea to pursue. I'm already so busy. But also the collegiality aspect of it. Is it going to come off wrong if I'm trying to put myself head and shoulders above other people by innovating and patenting? Interestingly, though. Speaking of golden girls, there is a generational gap.
2: Oh, this isn't surprising to me at all that it's it's getting better for women. Older women have experienced this statistically more so than women who are earning PhDs today. So this is this is a positive but in our convo.
3: Yeah, I know we're, we're butting back and forth. But, 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 but. Yeah. And, and basically, uh, as you move forward in time, women getting their PhDs in particular are more likely to look at the patent process and be like, yeah, totally. That's, that's for me. And they are also tending to be more accepting of being both an academic and someone doing commercial science. They're less likely to have quibbles, although I'm sure. That's not true like across the board generally.
2: Oh, so there's also the issue of it feeling like a literal almost sellout yeah. if you're an academic. Oh okay. that's another so, aspect of it. Oh, huh mm-hmm. Oh, people listening, patent holders and uh, people in these fields, I cannot wait to hear from you about this. And as we've also emphasized many times on the podcast and research bears this out top down sideways, gender diversity, And I would also assume diversity beyond gender. Ethnic (laughs) diversity, sexual orientation diversity, socioeconomic
3: diversity. Diversity
2: fosters innovation.
3: Yeah. IT patents with mixed-sex teams tend to have more citations. But if you are looking at 100% men versus 100% women, men tend to have higher such impact scores. Basically citations meaning like, Are other people building off of your innovation? Is your patent being cited in other patents? Are people looking at your innovation and being like, yes, that is amazing and inspirational, and I'm going to base some of my stuff off of it, too? And also, you know, this goes back to Lillian Gilbreth. This goes back to so many of our women innovators that we've already talked about, that when you talk to the people who put up with a certain problem, those people are going to be better equipped do solve that problem. And so that goes back, especially to menstruation. Uh, Pagan Kennedy wrote this great article in the New York Times, and she talks about how, uh, according to the authors of the 2012 book, Serial Innovators, one inventor back at Procter & Gamble in the 80s said that his bosses didn't care that women hated the huge brick-like sanitary pads that the company produced. And she's using that as an example of why that diversity in innovation is so important. Uh, she looked at 200 just tampon related patents since 1976 and found that three out of four inventors behind them were men.
2: Yeah. I mean, so Lily and Gilbreth, all lily pad, still, <laughs> still an exception. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's the same situation as was going on with the Chicago Exposition mm-hmm. and the women upset about the household items because you still had fellows who were holding the majority of the. Lady-related patents.
3: Yeah, and so basically going back to that Institute for Women's Policy Research report, they recommend that the U.S. Patent and Trade Office get on the whole thing of tracking women's progress in patenting. Build systems to do that, to know who is doing what, how much, how often, and what progress is being made. This episode
1: is brought to you by China.
0: The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
1: Yes. And right now, that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced Arches and halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you.
2: Caroline, we've got to patent something. Now, yeah, we really do. I mean, obviously, we don't want to say what our invention will be over the these broadcast airwaves. Someone might, a Frenchman might steal it. <laughs> a couple of Frenchmen, <laughs> but this this does have me kind of kind of wanting to try to patent something. Oh my god, I should try to do my uh, my old handbag. There you go. Yeah. Maybe you could. Well, you know, part of the patent process is you can't if you
3: innovate something on top of an innovation, mm. if it's a new innovation. So maybe there's a better, different way you can do the light up purse.
2: Well, and, we, well, you know, I think I'm going to shelve the purse because we also have many fake C&C products that we have <laughs> pitched on this podcast, including our branded menstrual cups. That's so right. We got a lot to work with, potentially. And also, listeners, let's crowdsource this thing. If you have ideas of what we should patent, please let us know. And we're curious to hear from you. Are there any patent holders in the house? Let us know what it's like. Anyone who has dealt with sort of gender-related issues when it comes to intellectual property. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Hey
3: out there, business listeners. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? It can be hard to find really quality candidates if you're having to post that job in so many different places and keep up with so many different applications. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter all with a single click. They really make it streamlined. And you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface.
2: No more juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person. Fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over one million businesses. And right now, Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash women. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash women. And one more time, go on and try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash women. Women And now back to the show. All right. I
3: have one here from Rose. Uh, She says, I just wanted to say thank you to you and all of the staff members at Smenti. Rose, I'm laughing because it's just the two of us. But thank you. I take that as a compliment. Uh, She says, for helping me to greatly improve my life. I grew up in a very conservative male centric family where I was expected to get a husband and start producing children as fast as possible and maybe hold down a part time job to help feed everyone. Then I went through 13 years of a very emotionally abusive relationship where my ex was having his own abusive relationship with his mother and grandmother and ended up developing a fear and hatred of women in general. Fast forward to now, I'm nearly 35 years old, lacking a sense of female identity. Literally, I did not feel comfortable calling myself a woman, instead preferring the the word girl, when I stumbled onto Sminty. I listen to you in my car as I drive around Seattle, running my own super successful in-home cat care business, often laughing, crying, and smacking my forehead in awe. I have discovered so much about my own body, sexuality the struggles women face that i thought were just my own and history i love history history about women is even better whenever a new episode comes out i can't wait to listen to it often putting it on the top of my very long queue then i tell everyone i encounter i am trying to spread the word of sminty as far and wide to women and men alike keep up the great work and i can't wait to hear what fun topics come out next
2: Oh, well, thank you, Rose. That's so sweet. Oh, Rose, I really, can we ride around with you someday if we come to Seattle? Cause that <laughs> sounds so fun. It sounds like you have the best job ever. Um, so I have a letter here from Austin with a Y who notes, uh, I'm a woman, but my parents gave me an unusually masculine name. They thought adding a Y would make it feminine. Uh, I love that. I've never seen that spelling before. Uh, but Austin was writing in about our episode on sex objects in the sky and flight attendants. So Austin has a rich family history, uh, particularly when it comes to United Airlines. She writes, my great grandfather started working for United Airlines in 1927 as a mechanic. My grandfather worked for United for 40 years as an operations manager and is currently the president of the United Airlines Historical Foundation. And my mom worked for United as a customer service rep for 21 years. Also, her dad is a United retiree and worked for United for 36 years. Austin, I hope that you get free United flights (laughs) everywhere. But she goes on to say, I was chatting with my grandma and mom about your podcast, and they reminded me of something United did in the past that I thought you'd find interesting. In the 1970s, the airline offered its frequent business travelers, mostly men, a BOGO trip where their spouse could fly for free. It was very popular, and United sent thank you notes to the wives of businessmen who took advantage of the offer. But the program didn't last long, as the wives of businessmen became furious when they had not actually gone on the trip because the businessmen had taken their mistresses. So a good deed on the airline's part ended up being a big disaster. Oh, that is hilarious and horrifying. So thank you for sharing that with us, Austin. And thanks to everybody who's written into us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources. So you can learn even more about invention and patenting. Head on over to Stuff Mom Never Told You.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done? At the persistence of systemic racism, you're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What if I told you that UFOs, haunted houses, and even inexplicable magic tricks are all caused by the same creature? And what if I told you these powerful and ancient beings are meant to be feared? The Hidden Jin, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Mankey's Grim and Mild, explores the legends of these ancient and terrifying creatures. Join me, Rabia Chaudhary, as we step into the world of The Hidden Jinn. Listen to The Hidden Jin on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.